Hello, this is Larry Norris of Erie, MPGenic Research, Integration, and Education, and you are listening to MPO Nation with Lorna Liana. Welcome to MPO Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. Visionaries, this is Lorna Liana here, and I want to share with you a weird experience I had with a Peruvian rock star shaman many years ago. Now, I say rock star shaman because there is a phenomena of mestizo shamans with a few years of training, traveling around the world, holding ayahuasca ceremonies, serving strong medicines, bedecked in feathers and jaguar tooth necklaces, charging $200 and above for a ceremony, who easily make $20,000 per locale they visit. And they essentially are on tour. So you can imagine if they visit five locales, that's a $100,000 tour. The issue with this phenomena is that these shamans don't stick around to provide support in the integration of these mind-blowing experiences, and sometimes ceremony participants are left in a shattered state. Up until my experience with this well-known rock star shaman, I had only ever had ayahuasca experiences replete with beautiful visions and encounters with divine spirits. You know divinity when you're in the presence of it. The beauty, nobility, grace, love, and compassion radiating forth will make you drop to your astral knees. So, while I was journeying in the spirit world within the container of this rockstar shaman ceremony, I was surprised to encounter entities of dubious intent. They looked strange and gave off a weird energetic vibe. I didn't want them close to me, and I spent the entire night trying to fend them off. In the morning, we had our closing integration circle. Then I drove off back home. Later that evening, something strange happened, something I'd never experienced before and have never experienced since. As I was drifting off to sleep in my bed that night, I suddenly felt the medicine come on strong again, and the swirling kaleidoscope portal that I typically journey through at the beginning of a ceremony opened up right in front of my eyes, in my bedroom. Six entities came out of that portal, dark, shadowy figures that surrounded my frozen body and proceeded to draw my energy from me without my permission. By the time I pulled it together to say some protective mantras, they fled with a day's worth of energy. And I say a day's worth because I spent the next day feeling totally depleted in spite of drinking three double lattes, which I never do. I was somewhat alarmed by the experience and tried in vain to get a hold of the shaman. The organizer of the ceremony really wasn't helpful. She didn't do integration work herself. She just offered her space. She tried to get me in touch with the shaman, but he was already on the move. Nobody called me back. Fortunately, I had my own community of medicine people that I could turn to. Eventually, I was connected with some powerful medicine women, women who hold a really clean work, in my opinion. I was placed in the center of an earth altar to receive communal healing. 
They realigned my energy body while the group sang medicine songs. At the end of the work, the medicine woman spoke about the importance of discernment. It's one thing if you're in the Amazon where there is ample support for the integration of your ayahuasca experiences. Perhaps after a major work, you and your friends spend plenty of time in nature, singing in waterfalls. Or there are one or more community shamans who are always available for consultations. Integration support is much more difficult to receive in countries where ayahuasca is considered to be a Schedule One drug and the ritual use of the medicine is an underground phenomena. Larry Norris, co-founder and executive director of Erie, Entheogenic Research, Integration and Education, is trying to address this problem by creating a formal network of therapists and counselors offering integration services. Check out the people and resources mentioned in the interview in the episode show notes at entheonation.com slash nine. Hello, visionary tribe of Entheonation. This is Lorna Liana, and my special guest today is Larry Norris, who is the founder and executive director of an organization called ERIE, which stands for Entheogenic Research, Integration, and Education, which is based in San Francisco, California. ERIE is a group that is dedicated to entheogenic research and specifically the development of integration tools, which is very much needed in this day and age, especially with the explosion of entheogenic groups and um, relative absence of support for individuals that have these experiences. Now, uh, Larry recently taught a graduate course called Entheogenic Education to discuss the potential of entheogens as cognitive tools. So, Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'd love to find out what inspired you to begin an organization like Erie and how you discovered that there was a need for these services or the support that you provide? Absolutely. Well, Erie, was, it's kind of been a long time coming. I think probably the first time I realized the need for Erie, I didn't really even know what was happening at the time. This was when I was much, much younger, and I had my first uh, sort of deep, profound, mystical experience from a mushroom experience that I had ever had. And um, I was, at the time, studying sort of neuropsychology uh, at the University of Michigan, and so uh, very much into the reductionist model, the materialist model, like looking at the brain neurons. And I had this experience which really connected me with sort of a, a sort of a, a, you know, by definition, a peak experience. I had this unitive experience uh, connecting with uh, multiple layers of, of sort of multidimensionality, if you will. And I was sort of uh, immersed in this uh, Akashic records of information. And after this really deep and intense experience, uh, I was sort of lost. I walked around. I was living in Ann Arbor at the time. And I walked around for hours just looking for somebody to talk to, to somebody to connect with on this. And I came to the realization way back then that how important it was to have some sort of support and community. That was a long time ago. That was in, you know, 90, in the mid 90s. And so since then, quite a bit of research has come out, which has been great. Uh, but however, there really, there wasn't an area, you know, all the research is kind of going into the biomedical model, the pharmaceutical model, the treatment of clinical um, issues, et cetera, et cetera. And I was a little bit more interested in more of the, for lack of a better term, fringe elements. So uh, what's happening within dreams, what's happening within the experience itself, the phenomenological aspects. Uh, uh, you know, Groff has this term, the cartography of the psyche. What's happening out there? What is the map of consciousness, if you will? So I was really interested in those questions. Uh, we came all to, came together, a bunch of us that uh, founded Erie, came together in a class uh, taught by Susanna Bustos at CIS, California Institute of Integral Studies. And uh, we came to the realization there that we just needed to have more dialogue, more conversation, and that we were equipped with the tools to do that because we had four or five researchers that were doing this research. We had a great networking of uh, a bunch of other researchers that were also interested. 
and we just wanted to create dialogue. Uh, through this process of creating dialogue and learning from the Bay Area residents that uh, there was also a need for integration, we decided to actually create these peer integration circles. So a non-facilitated circle uh, that was just a bunch of peers coming together to share their experiences very much in the, in the manner of a 12-step program. There's no one like sort of counseling or leading, but we're all there to share. Um, and that was really great. We had people coming in and sharing experiences that they've held on to for over 30 years. And so now we're like, wow, there really is a super huge need, not just for the community of, um, you know, sort of the new explosion of antigenic research or this reemergence that's coming, but also people in the past that just haven't had an opportunity to share. Um, and so that kind of started us off. Uh, we actually are now um, tax exempt in the state of California, and we just sent in our 501c3 paperwork for a federal uh, nonprofit exemption as well about uh, a week ago. So we're on the, on the path, and uh, eventually what we'd like that to look like is to actually create an integration house, a headquarters to be able to hold these events and these circles and things like that and be a big support to the community and also be a hub for people to know to go to to get great, solid, scholarly, academic information and also the support they need. We're also creating a, an integration referral network to be able to sort of work with everyone in the U.S. Right now, we're sort of more focused on the Bay Area, but I constantly get emails from people from Tennessee or Florida or Georgia or Michigan or everywhere on the East Coast that are also looking for assistance and help. Yeah, you know, I think this is a, you know, really valuable work that you're doing because I can, you know, pretty much uh, speak from my experience primarily in the ayahuasca world, which is I've been noticing an explosion of ayahuasca ceremonies um, happening in, you know, Western um, uh, countries and uh, being led by, both by rock star shamans that are primarily mestizos who play really great music, um, who are traveling around and charging a lot of money for these ceremonies and then just kind of disappearing, like doing a, you know, mm -hmm. North America tour, so to speak, and making like $10,000, $30,000 every, you know, locale that they stop. And, mm -hmm. um, and then people, you know, just having these experiences where their minds are being, you know, totally blasted open, but then the shaman's gone and the people that might have done the organizing work, um, you know, simply um, uh, are not even capable of holding the space for participants that might be having a difficult time with integration. You know, they might have just been, you know, simply offering up their home and like managing the email list and that's about it. And mm -hmm. so where do you go if you've had this really weird experience that you can't really talk to normal, you know, like other people in your life about or let alone want to go to like, you know, city health services or the emergency room and say, hey, you know, I had this experience and I saw these like, you know, three headed beings come out of this wormhole and like start talking to me for, you know, six hours. And you know what I mean? You'll end up on, you know, getting lithium shots or something, <laughs> something like that, you know? So it's really great to be able to find a network of people that kind of can really understand the parameters or the, the far out frontiers of what a visionary experience can be like and then provide both the visionary and spiritual emotional support as well as like the um, the uh, you know therapeutic and yeah. you know like physical it, support yeah you bring up a really awesome point too which is something that we've been in discussion about is like what's the difference between clinical integration and non-clinical integration or for lack of a better term philosophical or spiritual assistance or counseling or dialogue or what have you because I think in a clinical model there's a lot of people like MAPS are working a lot with PTSD MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies PTSD and other types of things that are dealt with more in a clinical setting but again how are they going to respond to or you know clinicians that are trained in this way how are they going to respond to the three-headed monster coming through the multidimensional space right so what we've been trying to do is to really allow for an opening for transpersonal experiences that come in to be able to have those dialogues too from a non 
design pathological framework from a way of, of sharing with them, well, maybe you need to read these texts, or here's a wisdom tradition you might be interested in looking into, or here's an experience that might help you relate to something a little differently. So also there's there's subtle dynamics within the integration context as well, clinical, non-clinical, philosophical, spiritual, what have you. So I think these are all really important points. And as we sort of grow uh, as in a more entheogenic culture, entheo nation, if you will, a little plug for you there, uh, <laughs> then, then we can sort of also develop uh, multiple different ways of integrating. Wow. So are, is ERI the only organization out there that offers this type of support um, and these resources? Or are there other organizations uh, that play in the space too? Yeah. I mean, one organization I can think of right off the top of the bat that has been doing this work for a while, but has sort of gone through ebbs and flows is the Spiritual Emergency Network. Uh, and this is a network that was started by Christina and, and Stan Groff um, back uh, maybe about 20, 20 years ago or so, maybe a little over, uh, 30 years. And that's basically was dealing more with the topic of spiritual emergence or spiritual emergency. Uh, this, however, can happen between multiple different ranges. It could be a spontaneous Kundalini awakening. It could be, you know, um, a channeling experience. There's a lot of things that aren't necessarily specifically focused on entheogenic experiences. So within that context, I believe that Erie is the only one that's working solely with entheogenic integration. But what's interesting is when we have these circles, we unfortunately live in a culture where now it is safer to say that you had an entheogenic experience than you had an alien abduction experience or that you had a Kundalini awakening experience or you had these other experiences. So people are actually finding safety under the umbrella of an entheogenic integration session because they don't have to be called out for these more crazy type of experiences because they're in this more um, sort of, again, a non-pathological framework. They're with other people that are having other different types of experiences. And it's really amazing to watch that they're still able to dialogue, even though they're having different experiences coming from different directions, the conversations are still applicable across the way. So I think, you know, Spiritual Emergency Network is the main one. I know that there's places like uh, CSP, the Council on Spiritual Practices, and they deal a little bit with spiritual experiences, but not really so much in the integration. I know there's other guide groups that are working out there and integration is part of their deal. I know that MAPS, there's a lot of talk therapy types of integration for the MDMA uh, studies that are done, but again, that's more of a clinician clinician model. Um, I personally really enjoy like um, painting types of integration. So again, uh, to have like a canvas and to like be painting and like working with the symbolic or the right side of the mind while things are coming out and, and you're talking about things. So, um, so I think like pretty much we're the only ones to answer your question. Uh, and I'd be happy, I mean, we would love to be able to connect with more organizations because the need is there for sure. Again, like we're trying to service the Bay Area, but you know, there are people emailing us from all over the place looking for assistance and help. So the more groups, the merrier, I think. So do you have a directory of therapists or, or and coaches that can help people, um, you know, work with people one-on-one on getting uh, through their, you know, integration period after a strong entheogenic experience? Yes, absolutely. We have uh, multiple different levels of that. We, again, we have people that are more working with sort of the facilitated, pure facilitated groups. Uh, we also have specialists that are in the area and then clinicians that are specialists in the area as well. Uh, right now, our database maybe only consists of about seven or eight people, but we're building that. We just haven't had the time and um, uh, opportunity to really like collect a really big database. But that's the idea to actually create a referral network for people to connect with all the time. And I know that the people that are on our list are getting emails and they're a source for information if anyone out there actually needs some help with integration, please contact us. That would be on the eerievision.org website under integration assistance. Okay, so um, do you think that the people that would be best served as uh, integration uh, support 
Well, I guess, you know, uh, the question is, is it necessary for the person providing integration support to be a therapist, a licensed psychiatrist or, or clinician, or could there be a variety of different levels of support uh, being offered? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there should be a variety of different levels of support because, like as I was saying a minute ago, sometimes the clinical model is what's needed and sometimes it's not at all. I would say the one thing that is imperative, however, is that the person who is doing the integration has had experiences because again it's like okay I'm going to talk to you about dreams but I've never had a dream I'm going to talk to you about sex but I'm a virgin like you know there's some elements of that that's missing you know so by being able to have the integration assistant have had an unex- inexperience somewhere along the lines and I mean preferably it would be someone that's working with one particular medicine is helping people working that integrating that medicine um, because that way you have a deeper dialogue you have insights that are being sort of sort of uh, to use a, um, a term downloaded from these experiences that can help other people as well. So I think that's really the only thing that's necessary is for the experience, the person to be experienced with some sort of antigenic experience. Um, but as far as whether it's a clinician or I think there's terms like philosophical counselor or spiritual counselor or spiritual emergency network assistant, all these other different types of levels, I think each person is going to um, be spoken to in a different way. They're going to be connecting in a different way. So we need to have multiple different people on multiple different layers. And I think even one individual can have multiple different ways or techniques of integrating as well. Mm, wow, fascinating. But this, I see a whole new uh, space, you know, a whole new uh, community opening up. And, and this is like, I, I would say, an ex- uh, an expression of the growth of uh, entheogenic research and entheogenic groups that are kind of like emerging uh, in, uh, in in the space. So I'd love to ask you, um, in addition to this explosion of ayahuasca, you know, groups and ceremonies and all that, it seems to there seems to be also a growth in. I don't know how official, officially sanctioned entheogenic research, like, you know, or maybe even FDA approved, or I'm seeing more studies come out on, on the horizon. And it seems like there's been more permission, if you will, rather than just complete suppression of this type of research. And so I'd love to ask you what your thoughts are on that. What is driving that? And, you know, and, and where do you think this is going to go? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I think, I think that's really a, a fascinating question. What is driving it? I'm not sure what's driving it. Maybe because what's driving it is that you have some clinicians who are seeing results. And that's most most of the research right now is happening within like Johns Hopkins, UCLA, NYU, and they're again going through the biomedical model. You have MAPS, which is on, I think almost on stage three for MDMA for PTSD. So that's kind of what the um, sort of the route that most of the researchers are going right now because it's safe and it's really hard to deny that veterans need help with PTSD. I would also argue, and there's been some people that are bringing this in the conversation, let's not just deal with the veterans, but what about war survivors? Like, they're people that, you know, things have come to them. They're not out there, um, you know, necessarily creating the war, but they're they're victims of the war. So also, we maybe need to bring in war survivors into the PTSD conversation as well. Um, but what I think is uh, the reason for this work is uh, because, again, it's effective. You know, you have a, a big population of baby boomers right now, which are going to have to face their mortality for the first time in their life. And 
and you have uh, you know institutions like Johns Hopkins and UCLA and NYU, which are looking at psilocybin for anxiety around terminal um, death. So people that are afraid of dying, they're not treating their terminal cancer, but they're treating their fear of death, uh, which is really interesting because again, you're, you're you're treating a spiritual problem within the biomedical context, which is a really great way to go about it. Um, and I think like this research will continue on, but I think that we also have to be aware that it's not the only research. We don't we don't want to take this area and couch it completely under the biomedical umbrella because many of us have had these experiences outside of a clinical model and had very transformative, you know, ritual, ceremonial, indigenous practices. There's lots of other ways to go about it. But unfortunately right now, this is the one that's getting the most play out there. But I think as things grow, and I think you're speaking to the maturity of, of um, empigenic culture now is that we're not just talking about these experiences, but we're talking about integration. We're talking about bringing it back. We're talking about growing. We're talking about transforming as a culture and transforming our paradigm. What do you think the most exciting research is in this space for you? Right now, I mean, um, for me, the most interesting research is research that looks more within the experience itself. You know, I mean, I can look at the microscope all day long and, you know, that's what anthropology and biomedical and all these other things are looking at the microscope, what's happening in a neuronal level, what's happening to the individual, what's happening physically, but I'm actually interested in what's happening inside the experience. And that's actually what my research is on right now. Um, I'm actually looking within ayahuasca experience for transformational themes and triggers. Uh, there's a book by a gentleman named Benny Shannon, which is a really beautiful book of charting the phenomenology of the ayahuasca experience called Antipodes of the Mind. And he does a really great job of sort of mapping out different layers of visions and things like that. So the, the areas that I'm focusing on for this uh, um, information is, or for this uh, archive, is the grand scene and virtual reality scenes. So the idea that we can map consciousness, that we can kind of see a deeper layer of consciousness, that there's different elements, there's different archetypes that we're all experiencing, for me, is very fascinating. I'm also very interested in uh, sort of the work that James Fadiman had done in the 60s and 70s, which got shut down, unfortunately, but hopefully will reemerge. And this is the idea of um, working with these um, tools and substances and plant teachers as cognitive tools, as creativity tools, and what types of things can evolve. Like, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about how the computer revolution began from psychedelic and entheogenic experiences, or that had some sort of uh, trigger for these um, um creative outputs, if you will, of the creative of the computer revolution. So I think that research is really interesting to antigenic education, what's happening uh, next in the world, what can we learn from these experiences? Hmm. So I, I really enjoyed Antipodes of the Mind, especially mm-hmm. um, after having numerous experiences and visions of ancient Egypt in my ayahuasca experiences, and then reading his, uh, I guess the, you know, his his work on charting the phenomenology of, uh, uh, of ayahuasca and like the grand themes that he encountered. I'm curious, uh, with regards to your research, why do you think it is that many people that engage in entheogenic um, exploration tend to encounter grand historical themes or, um, you know, some of the themes that he mentions in the book are... I guess the relationship or tension between nature and civilization or, you know, the grand theme of like life and death or, you know, sacrifice and deliverance. Uh, in your research, uh, why do you think people experience these themes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting question. and I don't think I'll be able to supply you with an answer today, but I can speculate for you, of course. Um, so I think I think for me, you know, there's there's what was really interesting about Benny Shannon's work in relationship to archetypes 
um, is he also, when he sort of breaks down psychology and which psychological perspective would best be suited for uh, ayahuasca experiences, he, he touches on Jung and says the archetypal idea is really great. But actually, he, he takes it one step farther and he says Jung's ideas of archetypes actually falls a little bit short because he believes that um, these experiences aren't necessarily symbols or psychology, but he believes that they're actually us seeing sort of a, an extra mental realm. So his quote is, a snake is just a snake, right? So sometimes a snake isn't a symbol of a past experience, but you're actually seeing this vibrant state, snake in this other place that we can't normally see with normal consciousness. So I think that was a really interesting way of sort of looking at it. Um, and I don't know, like, uh, Young wrote The Red Book, which was only just published in 2009. And, I love um, that book. It's beautiful. And he was okay. definitely tripping out on something. Well, that's I actually did a little bit of research to try to explore, like, what types of things would he been in contact with? Was there a possibility that he would have come across something? Because he talks about mandrake in the book. He talks about uh, alchemical brews. And in the very beginning of the intro, he says the Red Book was like a mescaline experience. So it was really strange. So I started really exploring that. I wasn't able to find any evidence to show that he had done anything. But uh, he said that this exploration was sort of like that. But within that context of that book, he talked about archetypes more as a spirit or as having their own sort of independent agency outside of himself than an actual archetype or psychology, which more his probably later more empirical self would have said. So he was sort of like watching himself a little bit later in his career. But I think if Benny Shannon had read the Red Book, he might have shifted some of the perspectives of Jung's interpretations of archetypes and seen them more as spirits and not just as psychologizing and symbols. Now, why do I think that these metaphors come across uh, in our experiences? I think a lot of them are part of the human condition. Like, you know, there's a lot of people that say ayahuasca is trying to help us understand uh, what we're doing to nature, you know, by Wasco lives on the planet. We're all part of this guy in mind. And here we are building things that are destroying, you know, the place we live in instead of working creatively and bringing in like how do plants and buildings work together? How do we use permaculture to work best in this environment or other ways to sort of um, live with nature instead of against nature? Uh, certain things like the surrender experience, the death and rebirth experience. These are all things that humans are going to have to face in their life, you know, dying, coming through. And so I think, um, I think all these are experiences that we just normally will have to sort of prepare us for this next stage. You know, I'm always interested too, you know, um, archetypes, are they archetypes because that's a symbol of something or is it an archetype because that's where that being lives? You know, again, there's like these subtle nuances of when you're talking about collective unconscious and you're talking about these other experiences outside, these transpersonal experiences outside of ourselves, what are our definitions really doing when we don't fully understand it? Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. So do you consider entheogens to be more like deities or doorways slash portals, if you will? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a fascinating question too. Um, I have gotten the impression from ayahuasca experiences and mushroom experiences that there's definitely a deity characteristic to it. There's a wise sort of, not always benevolent, but a sense of this like wise being that's sort of helping you along the path. I don't necessarily get that with, let's say, MDMA or LSD, which maybe are more of like keys or doorways to help open up something to a different place. I think they're both, but uh, actually Steve Byer came in and spoke with us a little while ago for hearing. He was actually saying, uh, kind of relating to that both both end aspect. You know, they're both doorways and they're deities. You know, you go through the doorway of the deity in order to get to the other place. So, um, so I think uh, as we sort of explore and get more familiar building relationship, and that's another thing too. You know, uh, within a lot of these cultures, uh, it's about building relationship with the plant, and that's really about building relationship with another being, another entity. You don't really build a relationship with the door, other than knowing this is where you go through. But when you're building a relationship to a deity. Maybe the door can get bigger or the door can become more accessible for us. Have you ever spent much time down in the Amazon or in other cultures working with traditional plant medicines and, you know, the old ways? Yeah, um, I have spent a little bit of time in the Amazon, but uh, the tradition I was working with there was mestizo with uh, some Shipibo element to it. I have worked in the Bay Area with more traditional settings, uh, some folks from Columbia, some folks from the Hunikuan tribe, uh, and some folks from the Shipibo oh, as really? well. Oh, really? It's really mean? awesome. Mm-hmm. And it's really awesome to see sort of the varying degrees of how the ceremonies are set up and how, but yet there's still some consistent thread to keep them along. One thing I really love, for example, uh, from the ceremonies from the Colombian group was uh, their their attention to the Olympias at the end and really sort of bringing that out. And after you have this experience, this really deep experience, and they have, you know, where you sort of take your shirt off and they beat um, the, the, the branches on your back and you sort of sing and you just sort of feel everything just come off you that you worked out. So anything that wasn't fully purged and just had sort of percolated to the top of your skin was then sort of cleansed off. So I think that was a really beautiful way to end the ceremony. So I think there's certain elements that each tradition have that are really just beautiful nuggets to help the experience get um, more engaged with ourselves. So I've spent a lot of time with the Hunikuin tribe of Brazil. I'm curious to know who it was that came through because I heard rumors that there was some Hunikuin uh, that were in the Bay Area, but I didn't catch who who it was. And I'm kind of curious to know whether it's somebody I know. It's Leopardo. Uh, he oh, came yeah. both times at Erie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So how do you, how do you know Leopardo? I, I traveled with him in 2004 to his village with his brothers. Fantastic, yeah. Uh, he was coming up with um, uh, Marcelo Schomburg, who works with uh, Plantando Conscientias, I believe, and Floresta de Unicornos, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure of the names of those groups, but they're two different groups that, he, uh, that they've been working with. And he's come up and actually spoke with Erie quite a few times. I'm actually putting the videos out right now, so they should be out in the near future. And uh, what's interesting, too, about those ceremonies is there's definitely like a, a lightness to them. You know, um, there's much more in the way of dancing. There's much more in the way of like sort of shaking it off, if you will. And that just like had some ceremonies, it's all just about deep work and there's not really a chance to like get up and move around. But but that was one thing and a lot of laughter and, and, and connecting. And I think that's really important humor and bringing that into the experience. Wow, that's so great. There are all these just kind of like overlapping threads and, and worlds, so to speak. I'm always impressed at um, how I discover how interconnected my international ayahuasca community actually is. You know, I, I would, would have never known that you guys who I know um through different channels have actually uh, gotten to meet and host Leopardo. And I had no idea that you were also a student of Susanna, who I spent time with, uh, uh, I spent time with
with she and Robert in Mayan Tuyaku in 2007, mm-hmm, working absolutely. with their maestro Juan Flores Salazar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and they're doing beautiful work down there too with uh, Takiwasi and uh, Jack Fabid um, and trying to come uh, find ways to help uh, people who are working with addiction to come back from that and heal from that. And so her work is just amazing and I'm really um, privileged to be able to work with her. Mm-hmm. They're amazing people. I, I really mm-hmm. respect them. So we're coming to the end of our conversation, our interview together. I'd love to leave you with a couple questions. This sure. is my favorite question. So what was the most far out visionary experience you have had? So probably the most far out visionary experience I've had had been sort of connecting and relating to the spider element and um, realizing that the universal fabric is such that uh, it's really just a bunch of strings and everything we see in a three-dimensional plane can actually be pulled apart and moved through so you can get through to the other side and everything three-dimensional is actually just a two-dimensional plane that can be moved through with like fabric. So this spider interaction I was having was sort of teaching me how to move through this fabric, how to navigate through this, and also how to sort of pluck the fabric in such a way that the vibration would open up different realities. And if you didn't get the vibration right, the reality would close or collapse or a different reality would form. So it's just this really interesting multidimensional exploration and movement through what seems like, okay, there's just like this space in front of me, but actually just this much space in front of you is, you know, thousands and thousands of realities. So uh, that for me was pretty profound because it just reopened my eyes to how much more there is around me, very, very close to me. We don't have to go out to Pluto or far space. You know, there's space right here that we have to explore or that or is available to explore, I should say. So you can actually access different realities by changing your vibration. Changing the vibration of the string by plucking the vibrations of the strings that are the fabric of the universe that we're moving through. Wow, that's really profound. I'm going to explore that one. (laughs) Okay, so what do you think it means to awaken as a human being, Larry? Yeah, um, to awaken as a human being, that's interesting. I think that's really being conscious of community and relationship. And I think that's not just relationship with family and friends and partners, but also relationship to the land, to the people that lived here before us, to the trees and the plants, to the food we eat. I can't say that I'm always great with my relationships. I like to eat ice cream and other things with sugar in it. So, um, you know, those things kind of fall flat occasionally. But I think really just like connecting with you know, uh, who's around us and, and trying to live and grow in the most creative and uh, stress-free manner and uh, really help and support the people around us. Fantastic. So can you uh, leave us with what your future visions and dreams are and how we can best stay in touch with you? Sure, absolutely. So future visions and dreams are really making this uh, Erie project move forward and that would involve basically an integration house. So we're actually looking to create an inpatient, outpatient integration center, uh, both to deal with people with a uh, sort of a lower level of integration needs and then also people like, for example, coming back from Ibogaine and heroin addiction um, uh, work. So people that rather than go to Mexico, have a three-day experience and then go right back home where their friends might be offering them heroin again to have a place to sort of unpack these experiences. Also with like ayahuasca spiritual emergencies. So those would be more the inpatient work and then we'd also have outpatient. And then a future vision way down the road when eventually these uh, medicines become decriminalized is to actually create uh, an educational institution with plant teachers as core faculty. So this is one of the things I touched on in the class at CIS this summer. What would that look like? Would we want it to be accredited or not? What types of curriculum would we have? What would visiting professors offer to the community? How would we 
we'd be working with guide work or integration work or any of these other types of work, what types of permaculture would be doing, how would we relate to the plants, how would we grow the plants and watch them from seedling to fruiting uh, flower, plant or cactus or what have you, uh, what different types of things can we learn directly about the plant, bringing in indigenous teachers, indigenous scholars, learning from their traditions. So really for me, that's a beautiful vision of the future. Like, again, you know, uh, it works with integration, it works with education, it works with research and allows us to uh, sort of give back to the plants and learn from them what they've what they've been trying to teach us for a while. Fantastic. How can we best stay in touch with you, Larry? Yeah, so the best way to keep in touch with me is through our website. It's www.eerievision.org, E-R-I-E-V-I-S-I-O-N.org, or the same, uh, eerievision at gmail.com. You can also check us out on any YouTube page, Meetup, Facebook, etc. Same thing, eerievision, E-R-I-E-V-I-S-I-O-N. Awesome. Thank you so much, and you have a beautiful day. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I look forward to chatting some more. I am so glad that an organization like Erie exists, especially as the use of ayahuasca is becoming much more popular in the West. People and resources mentioned during this episode can be found in the show notes at entheonation.com slash nine. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd so appreciate if you would take the time to rate and review the show. This increases our visibility in the iTunes marketplace and helps this information reach more people in the world who need it. If you would like to get the transcript of this episode and more consciousness-raising content delivered straight to your inbox, simply text Entheonation, that is E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Just reply to the SMS with your best email and never miss an episode. I'm going to end this episode with one of my favorite tracks from Amazon Ensemble called Celestial Wine from the album My Inini. This album was recorded during my epic 2004 journey to the Kashinawa indigenous territory of Upper Jordão in the state of Acre, Brazil. Amazon Ensemble is a world music ensemble based in Norway. When I listen to this album, it brings back vivid memories of that trip and the people that I met on that journey. The Kashinawa call themselves the Hunikwin, or the true people. The shaman chanting in this track is my friend Iba Salas, who is a university professor and the most knowledgeable person in the tribe and most likely in Brazil on Hunikwin traditional chants and their meaning. Enjoy.
ta ai bu ai ng ai a ai bu na ba ta ai ng ai a ba ta tu na ha bi ta ai ng ai a ku nu ni ai bu ai ng ai a ta bu ki ri so ai ng ai a na nu ku nu ku ni ai ng ai a ka ka bi ta ku nu ya ai ng ai a Ah.